Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner-Khan. Now in COVID, what people are seeing, companies are seeing is you don't really own employees. You have an interdependent relationship with employees who have to work very collaboratively with you if they're going to work effectively in this very disruptive environment. Today on episode 551 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with the founder and chief opportunity officer of Opportunity Lab, Mark Monchek. I'm going to ask Mark how you can build a mindset that supports frameworks for success in an age of disruption. You can find out more about Mark along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Are you building your own business after a long career as an employed professional? Listen to our show, Going Solo, also found on our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Mark Monchek. Mark is the founder and chief opportunity officer of Opportunity Lab, a strategy consulting firm focused on conscious growth. Mark has worked with leaders from Google, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Adorama. He's the author of the Amazon nonfiction bestseller, Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business in an Age of Disruption. And he's been featured in Real Leaders, Lifetime Network, and WCBS. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. So much a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on again. I know we've had some uh, really great conversations in past episodes. We're in a different year this year, 2020. And I love the title of your book because it has both disruption and opportunity in the title. How often do you find that these two words go together? Well, today it's every day, every moment of every day. You know, it's like we are in an age of radical disruption. And my book, which came out in 2017 and has been taught at you know universities uh, around the country, it seems like it's even more relevant than ever today because the disruptions are coming uh, every day. You wake up and you read the news and you try to find out, is, is there going to be a bigger disruption that happened yesterday? So I, I think it's really become a mindset of we're in an age where you can't really predict very much. You can't plan ahead for the long range, although you certainly want to think about the long term. So there's got to be a culture that is constantly seeing what's out there, evaluating what has to be done on a short-term, mid-term, and long-term basis, and has got to be much more connected than ever. So I noticed you know, in the questions that you asked me to think about in reference to this show, one of them was, what's the problem that you try to solve for your clients? And you know, years ago, it was profitability, then it was years after that it was customer experience and it was employee satisfaction and all those are true today but it's more than anything it's about consciousness and awareness about how to think about your business in a different way than we've ever had to think about it before and why does thinking about your business in a different way help you get through disruption well i'm going to give you a case example from one of our clients that i think has had enormous success in the era of COVID because they learned how to think about their business in a very different way. And then we can kind of go from there because I think the examples are so, so important. And this is not a extremely unique company in certain ways because it's it's in consumer electronics. It's in the United States. It's a mid-market company under a billion dollars in revenue. And the the company is Adorama, which is a classic New York-based brand of consumer electronics, particularly cameras, videos, home entertainment, as well as technology. So when COVID hit, 
Adorama employees were used to working like most other companies in the office, you know, 8.30 to 6 or some variation of that regular structured schedule. And we understood immediately, probably before a lot of the companies, that we had to move uh, 75% of our employees working 100% remotely for the indefinite period. The 25% of the employees that were not working remotely were in our warehouse in New Jersey that had to ship out essential goods to people who needed to figure out how they were going to move their home office, their offices into their homes. So instead of thinking about how do we be profitable during this time, they said, how do we care for the safety of our employees and our customers as our number one priority? How do we make sure employees have the psychological ability, the technological ability, the informational ability to be able to work at home where most of them have never, ever done that? So we started this program with Adorama called ShareLab at the very end of March, where we would go into every single department of the company and we would help them share their feelings about how is it to work remotely? How are you managing your family issues? What do you need to stay connected to your colleagues and the rest of the company? And through that ShareLab program, as well as a lot of other of the activities that Adorama did to take care of their employees, their customers, and the communities they do business in, the company's had its best year ever. And it had a really good customer ratings before, and its customer ratings have gone up because they put customers and employees first. That, that's actually a great example. So now going back to the principles behind that, are there frameworks that you think everyone in business should be thinking about in order to build that kind of culture that leads to infrastructure that can support sustainability and perhaps success through disruption? Yes. So the the first shift that I've seen that really applies to COVID or COVID has made it even more pronounced is in the past, let's say if we go back to the Industrial Revolution, let's go go way back to John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, and Henry Ford. The idea of the 19th century capitalist was to acquire land, natural resources like gold, steel, oil, and acquire labor and capital and be able to make the maximum profit. And the thought was, you know, we own our employees, we own our land, and we kind of own access to our customers. And that did very well in a lot of ways, but it actually was not sustainable over a long period of time. And now in COVID, what people are seeing, companies are seeing is you don't really own employees. You have an interdependent relationship with employees who have to work very collaboratively with you if they're going to work effectively in this very disruptive environment where many of them have to work at home. Their kids are at home much of the time. They maybe have aging parents and our customers are extraordinarily disrupted. So we've got to think rather we we own our employees or we control our customers, that we are interdependent with them. And if we understand that, then we work in a very different way and we gather a lot of data and ask our customers and our employees and the communities we do business with, how are you doing? What do you need? And there's a constant focus on that. And the profitability comes as a result of that focus. It sounds, for some people, I'm wondering how counterintuitive this might seem and how how much of a major shift in mindset it is for lots of people in leadership and management roles in business. I think it is a a very significant mind shift for a lot of people. But if we look at what happened in, in the 2008 recession, you can see there's evidence for that mind shift actually having worked very well for the companies that 
succeeded through that and not very well for the companies who did not. And I think 2008 is a lesson learned where we are now because there's a lot of those similarities that uh, are coming back to us today, which is how do you deal with disruption? How do you deal with lack of, of predictability? And how do you make sure that you keep your company together and your customers together during their disruptive time? So before 2008, you had these iconic companies like Blockbuster, like Research in Motion, uh, maker of the BlackBerry, like Nokia, who was the largest handset maker in the world, like Bear Stearns, like Lehman Brothers. These are companies that were number one or number two in their markets, iconic companies who were not responding to what was happening in their world, not responding to the fact that the internet and, and technology had changed radically, not responding to the economic conditions that were going on at the time. And then there were companies, some of whom just were barely in existence at the time, Etsy, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, you know, Amazon, I mean, um, excuse me, Facebook in 2007 was only three years old, 2008, four years old. So these companies who were really willing to ask, what do our customers need now that they didn't need yesterday, the day before, where other companies like Blockbuster, for example, they actually could have bought Netflix. They just denied the fact that the landscape of video streaming was changing. They really didn't focus on their customers. They didn't focus on their employees and they are long out of business. Nokia did not focus on the fact that the smartphone and access to the internet and all of the functionality that we take for granted in our mobile phones was the thing that they needed to focus on. They got complacent and they didn't shift that mindset. So we can see that mindsets can be radically shifted as they have been over the years, but it takes some history lessons. It also takes some asking your employees and your customers, what do you need? And you'll find out a lot of the answers through that inquiry. Yeah, asking what our customers need today and what they'll need tomorrow seems to me to be pretty sensible. Uh, it is sensible. Steve Jobs uh, would argue uh, from wherever he is in that great beyond that customers don't know what they need. People used to say to him, why don't you do focus groups? Because well, customers don't know what they need. I know what they need before they know it because I'm giving them things that they didn't even know existed. So asking customers is really, really important. And we got to constantly do that in, in different ways. But asking employees what they see customers needs, particularly the ones who are on the front lines in customer service or inside sales or in this floor of a retail store, it's the collective intelligence that tells us. It's looking at what competitors are doing, looking at data out there about what's happening in the full marketplace and not having a narrow vision, but having a wider lens that's important to understanding what customers need. Mm -hmm. So um, are you suggesting that you you continuously need to do market research, not only with your your customer audience, but your employee audience, other team members who may not be direct employees, vendors, competitors, and everybody in your in your ecosystem? Yes, yes, and, and yes. And I'll give you a specific example of that, David. In one of our ShareLab sessions with the inside sales team at Adorama, we asked them if you could give your customer one thing that we're currently not giving them to improve their experience, what would it be? We had far more than the 45 minutes we allotted to it of answers. Many of them, David, were low-hanging fruit that we actually could act on pretty quickly and that we did act on pretty quickly. But it was so powerful and so rich you know, and dense information that we then 
suggested to our customer experience improvement team to spend an hour with the same group of people, recording it, taking it down, which we did, and we immediately enacted customer improvements in the immediate, and then we looked at other things we couldn't do right now, but that would be put into our, our future plans. It was such a great example of the collective intelligence of employees who are on the front lines that we have to continually speak to and ask because they often have answers that the senior management wouldn't even know existed. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Mark, I want to go back to what you were talking about before with an independent relationship with employees. Between 2008 and 2020, I have seen lots and lots of content, articles, etc., about the whole concept of working from home and things like judging performance based on results versus input. And I, I sensed that there was a, a shift happening and the internet certainly made it easier for people to, who are knowledge workers to work from anywhere. But there was a lot of resistance to employees working from home or having a different kind of workforce than existed before 2008. Clearly, 2020, all bets are off. The landscape has changed radically and I think nobody's going to question working from home the way they did even a year ago going forward. What do you see happening in terms of this interdependent relationship and how this how companies need to think about it now that everybody realizes that there needs to be a lot more flexibility on all sides of the the working relationship between company and team member? Great. A lot of questions in there. Let me see if I can unpack it kind of one by one. So let's go back first to the mindset shift, which, which yes, there's been a lot of content. Yes, more uh, employees have been working remotely. But even still, when it came to the middle of March, when many companies realized that they, they would have to move the vast majority, if not the entire population of their employees remotely, they pulled Fortune 500 CEOs and about 50% of them were not very confident that they could pull this off. When they polled these same CEOs a few months later, you know, 90% of them were happy and much more sanguine about the results than they ever thought they would be. So there was a lot of uh, beliefs about not being able to trust employees and also not to be able to measure the results. So what we have found with our clients and what I've seen in the research is performance today is much more measurable than it ever was. And it's much, much easier to understand what the results are of somebody who might be working remotely. And if they are not working remotely, the fact is, unless you're actually sitting at somebody's desk, you have no idea whether they're on Facebook half the day because being in the office or out of the office is not a particular way to measure productivity. It's really the results of that particular uh, department, that particular role. And with technology, it's it's more measurable than it than it ever was. And the way that it worked, David at, at Adorama and uh, Feltzberg, our client out in California, and some other companies, is there was a very very respectful back and forth between the employees and the employer about working hours, about technology that they needed, about when they needed to come into the building. For some people who actually did come into the building, how to make the building as safe as it could possibly. That respect for the interdependence really made this work very well at some of our clients where before 
It would be, well, you're just going to do what we say. We'll say it in a nice way. We'll try to give you a reasonable expectation. I think people intuitively knew that just was not the way to ha- it had to happen this time. It had to happen in a collaborative way. And the companies that have done well, I think, were much more collaborative than they ever expected to be. I think the term respect is a really important one. It is. Absolutely is. And it, it shows up, the productivity shows up, I think, for two main reasons. Both of them, you know, generating from the respect that the employer had for the autonomy of their employees. Because when you're in an autonomous situation, you know, you're you're an entrepreneur, you have a lot of autonomy, just I do over my my day. You can be a lot more creative and you can get into flow. You can get into that really high energy, high performance mode when you control the time more than not. And when you have far, far fewer interruptions from the the physical environment out there where people can come and interrupt you. You've got all this distraction going on, but also the fact that you're not commuting and people are saving anywhere from a half an hour to three or four hours a day in not commuting. And that is going back into the productivity and lowered stress. Now they have higher stress for other things for sure, but the productivity that comes from the not commuting and the control of rework is pretty huge. Yeah, for sure. So, Mark, for companies that realize that because of the major disruption that we've experienced this year and the likelihood that there is going to be ongoing disruption and the challenges that you mentioned at the outset of our conversation around long term planning, how for those companies that realize that they need to make a shift in the way they're functioning in order to be able to manage through disruption and plan through disruption, but they really aren't clear on how best to do it. Are there some simple steps or some ways to think about how they can learn how to do a better job of managing through disruption or how they can get access to some guides to get through it? Absolutely, David. So as I mentioned earlier, information and dialogue with your customers and your employees and also your vendors, in some cases your shareholders is key. But let's focus for now on customers and employees. So doing surveys, and I'm talking about short, simple surveys, whether they be you know using SurveyMonkey or some other surveying tool, or just using Google Forms or email, or just getting on the phone and talking to them, asking them questions like, what do you need right now to function at the best possible level. What is it you're not getting that we could possibly offer you? Is there something you want to contribute to the company that you have not yet contributed? And, you know, with customers of Adorama and Feltsburg, a lot of other clients, when this first happened, they called up their customers, not for an order, not to sell anything, to say, how are you doing? How are you doing? I just want to know that everything's okay. Is there anything we can do to help, help you be safe or just you need to talk. And that was such a profound outpouring of care, which wasn't about profit or business. It was about, you know, we, we depend on you customers. We care about you and we need each other. So it's a mindset. And then there are those activities, which are, a lot of it revolve around gathering information and being in a dialogue. That's great. Mark, you've had great success guiding businesses through disruption before this year. And, and in particular, during this this year, this really challenging year, what's your dream for the going forward for the way people will work to be able to do their best job serving those that they want to serve 
even through disruption? Boy, David, what a great question. That's a big question, but let me try my best in the, in the format we have. I think, David, it's, a, it's about the humility of interdependence. I keep going back to that word interdependence because we've, we've seen in the United States where COVID has had much of a darker and bigger toll than we thought that it would. I think in some parts of the country, uh, we haven't accepted the fact that we're interdependent that an action of one person can affect thousands and thousands of people. And in a business, when you understand the interconnectedness of you, your employees, your stakeholders, your shareholders, and your customers, you think about what you're going to do in a very different way, in a very much more conscious way, in a more humble way. You ask rather than tell, you offer rather than sell. You understand that you and your partners have to succeed or else no one will succeed. So Bruce Springsteen has one of my favorite quotes from him is, you know, nobody wins until everybody wins. How do we set scenarios where everybody or as many people as possible get to succeed in this situation, like, like a disruption like we're having right now? So well said. Mark, if anybody wants to go deeper with what you shared today or learn more or access any resources you have, where would they go? Well, for the book, uh, which you can get in print or in Kindle, you can go to amazon.com. Our website is oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. We have enormous number of blogs and newsletters, quite a few videos, many podcasts, uh, episodes, including the ones I've been on with you, David. You can reach our staff at discover at oplab.com. And if you prefer watching me on video on YouTube, we have a video channel called Oplab TV. Great. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come back and join us again on Smashing the Plateau. In this year of disruption, my guest today has been the founder and chief opportunity officer at Opportunity Lab, Mark Monchek. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us. Thank you, David. Really appreciate the work you're doing. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today, we learned about the frameworks that support success in an age of disruption and much more. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.